Genesis chapter 32 presents a, a culmination of sorts. And, uh, and so I, I looked up culmination in Merriam-Webster dictionary this week, and it said culmination is the act of culminating. <laughs> it was not very helpful, uh, but it did have a link to the verb form to culminate, and here's what it said, to reach the highest point, a climactic point, or a decisive point. And that's what's happening in our passage today. Jacob is reaching a decisive point, a climactic point, point of action here. And it reminds me of the school year where we're approaching the end of the year. It's coming up on spring break. It's soon to be graduation and open houses that sort of is a culmination of everything that's happened in the last 12 years. Maybe in your mind's eye, you can remember your own open house or graduation or that of your, your kids or your grandkids or you're, you're looking forward to it. You know, in those open houses, you often see that sort of the photo wall that tracks all the events that have been building up to this particular moment. Right, you start with a baby picture. Wasn't I a cute baby? <laughs> okay, so you start with the baby picture. As you guys, it's like a, a pleasant laugh. They're like, oh, yes, Justin, you, maybe not, but we'll still laugh with you about that. And it goes on past the baby picture, and then the next picture you see is that kindergarten picture where you just smile so great. Isn't Pastor Casey have a great smile there? So excited to be with Dad in the recliner there. All smiles. We go on, and you know, in elementary school, you had dreams of being a pro football player, Pastor Steve. It didn't work out well. We're so thankful for your contributions to the military and to the insurance industry and to Parkside Bible Church. It wasn't in the cards for you to play on Sundays. Everything was going good, though, until middle school hits. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> got a good-looking guy leading worship here. It's like, man, John, you had so much going for you. What went wrong? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's that seventh grade picture that just really gets you in trouble. If, if you scroll back, you could, you could see Pastor Scott here in the sixth grade. Same hairdo as today, just a little bit more of it back then. And if you jump forward to the eighth grade, it's the same exact thing. But somehow in the middle, in seventh grade, where you don't know what happens, next picture there, it's like, man, the haircut was all right like it was before. You don't have to change it up there. See, in, the middle, in middle school, we just don't know what happens to us, but that's okay. It's building, it's culminating towards something, towards that senior year picture, Pastor Jared, where you are ready for the world. And it's just building and building, and there's a culmination. And of course, I tried to find a, pack, a, a picture of Pastor Len, but they didn't have cameras back then, and so... <laughs> So, Pastor Lynn, we're very glad you're here and that you did make it through your schooling to a, you know, a successful life that contributes to society. But all of these things are uh, preparing us along the way for this culminating sort of event. And that's basically what's happening in chapter 32 here for Jacob. He's had all these life events coming along the way, and it's coming to this, this culmination in chapter 32. We find him, in a sense, wrestling for the blessing, as the, the sermon is titled. If we continue the, the, the school analogy a bit, this, this final episode with Esau where he's preparing to meet him, that's a little bit like his senior year of high school. 
And at the end of chapter 32, we find him wrestling with God. And that's a bit like the graduation and the open house that actually gets commemorated. So, so what I want to do with our, our kind of our structure this morning is I want to be a very brief flyover of this preparation with Esau. Uh, and we'll actually look a little bit more closely at that next week where they actually meet each other. Uh, and then we'll zoom in this week on this wrestling with God uh, and draw out four lessons about grace that we can see from this wrestling with God. So let's overview the Esau thing first. Jacob seems to be returning home, apparently seeking to reconcile with his brother Esau, brother that he cheated. And the angels of God meet Jacob in this town called Mahanaim. It's a significant place. It would become one of the Levitical cities. 2 Samuel 2 reports that one of King Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, would be named king here in this city. Uh, David. King David would defeat Absalom's insurgency near this city. One of King Solomon's chief officers lived in this city. So the original reader hears Jacob comes to Mahanaim and realizes, oh, this is a significant place. There are a lot of things that happened here. And we find Jacob immediately afraid for his life. You see evidence of that as this enormous set of gifts that he's preparing to give to Esau and try and appease his anger. And Jacob devises this elaborate scheme of here's how I can keep my brother from being so angry at me and perhaps even killing me. This scheming is very consistent with Jacob's uh, his character, right? He's the elaborate schemer, and this is just a, an outgrowth of who he is and who he's been. Well, like I said, we'll see more about that next week. But in the middle, we find God intervening with relentless grace and surprising Jacob with something he never would have expected, something far more significant than reconciling with his brother. Before the night was over, we will have found Jacob literally wrestling all night long with the God of the universe. Now, I don't know what you have planned for tomorrow morning, but if you tonight found yourself in a physical wrestling match with the God of the universe, I would say that's a pretty legendary change of plans for what you had on the agenda tonight. This is one of those nights in Jacob's life that he'll never, ever forget. God shows up, and theologians call this a theophany. It's kind of a $2.50 word. All it means is an appearance of God before Jesus came to earth. In the Old Testament, there's a few of these. And some theologians would suggest this was actually Jesus Christ in the flesh. That was John Calvin's view. Uh, but I'm not entirely convinced he's right. And the reason is this. Sometimes when you have an Old Testament theophany, God shows up in the Old Testament, you also find a New Testament passage that says that was Jesus. And so the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament and what took place there. In Genesis 32, there's no New Testament passage that says that was Jesus. So I'm cautious to say it was Jesus because the Bible doesn't tell us that. The point is not really to belabor which person of the Trinity was it, but to recognize this is actually the God of the universe coming and wrestling with Jacob. So he's preparing to meet Esau and finds himself in a surprising turn of events, wrestling with God. And this is where we sort of pick up the story. We're picturing Jacob in the midst of this wrestling match and learning what it tells us about the grace of God through the wrestling match. It is a little bit hard to wrap your mind around what would it look like for a man to actually wrestle with God. If you hope I can solve that mystery for you this morning, you might leave a little disappointed. I can't tell you exactly how that went down, but it is a startling thought. 
and one that tells us a great deal about grace. And so what we want to do is draw out four lessons about grace that we can see from Genesis 32. Here's the first lesson about grace. Grace must be personal. Grace must be personal. I hope you've got your copy of God's Word still open to Genesis 32. If you don't, please open it again. Um, Let's look back together at uh, verse 22, and we'll read through verse 24. Here's what the Scripture says. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. We'll come back to that in a moment. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Where was Jacob when the man comes and wrestles with him? He was alone. He encounters God's grace in a very personal and an intense way. If you put yourself into Jacob's shoes, he's got all kinds of religion all around him. Right? His grandpa is Father Abraham, who's been telling him stories of God's grace and his promises for years and decades at this point. He probably doesn't lack for religious or biblical knowledge. His dad, Isaac, is doing the same thing. Stories of God's grace, filled with biblical knowledge. But these things are no substitute for a personal encounter with the grace of God. You've got to hear that loud and clear in this first point, that religious experiences, knowledge of who God is, or about him, theological facts, is no substitute for you personally encountering the grace of God. You say it this way, no amount of knowledge about God can ever replace knowledge of God. Now, I know it's cold out and snowing, and we don't like to see that, so let me cheer your spirits with the thought of Indiana sweet corn. You can know all sorts of things about Indiana sweet corn. You can know the, the genetic makeup of the seeds. You can know all about the, the, um, the machinery that leads to the planting. You can know where to get the fields for it. You can know how it's harvested. You can know the best stands to go pick it up on the side of the road while it's still fresh. You can have friends tell you how good it tastes with butter and salt and pepper on it or just by itself because you don't need the fixings. But none of that is close to actually biting in and tasting it and experiencing it yourself. Right? It's one thing to fill up the Wikipedia page about it. It's another thing to eat it for dinner and say, oh my goodness, that is so good. That's the difference. Knowledge about God or actually knowledge of God and experiencing his grace in a personal way. I think this, this sort of lack of personal experience of God's grace, it happens to us all the time today. It's not merely something that happened to Jacob back then. It continues today. There's all sorts of ways we could think about this. Maybe there are circumstances that push you back to church, circumstances that push you to seek religion, but they're not a substitute for encountering the grace of God. Maybe you've been away from church for a little while. You have kids, and you think, man, we got to get back in church because these kids need to be taught you know, these moral truths from the Bible. What's well, good for your kids to be in church, but that's no substitute for you encountering the grace of God personally. Maybe you have a health crisis and say, man, i got to get back in church and ask God to heal me. Maybe you think of a a, a national crisis, a terrorist attack. Certainly churches were full after 9-11, right? It's good for churches to be full and to hear the preaching of the gospel 
It's good to seek the Lord in a health crisis, but none of these are substitutes for you personally encountering the grace of God. Maybe you think of looking for religion in civic life and in public theology where you say, man, what we really need is to have prayer back in the public schools. You think of presidential inaugurations where the president puts his hand on the Bible and takes the oath of office and say, yeah, we got to get back to that. You think of a public servant who dies and, man, there needs to be a funeral in a church to remind people of our origins and our roots. And all these things are good things. Don't hear me being against any of them, but none of them are a substitute for you personally encountering the grace of God. I think there's ways we see this in our family life. There's many of you, as I talk and we, we know each other, we do life together. You share with me, Justin, I grew up in church, went to Sunday school, went to youth group, mission trips, did all the fixings. I went to college and I, I just stopped going because I didn't have need of it anymore. It was a family thing, but it wasn't your thing. You knew all about God, but you hadn't met him personally. Or in the words of of Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. Not just know about God. Boy, I tell you, just from a a pastoral standpoint, can can I say something to us here? It is so important that we be exceedingly cautious in giving our kids assurances of faith before we have good evidence they're actually following Jesus? As I do membership interviews, as people are coming to membership in Parkside, one of the main things we're trying to do in a membership interview is discern, is this person actually a Christian? That's a baseline entrance into God's church. You be a Christian. And one of the most frequent pieces of feedback that we hear as pastors is this. I was a kid, prayed a prayer, I got baptized, I knew it would make mom and dad happy. I even started to evangelize, because I knew that's what I was supposed to do too. But it wasn't actually my own faith. We've got to be careful in giving kids assurance of faith before they've actually shown evidence of walking with Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, parents, I'd say at a minimum, your kids need to be able to explain the gospel. Not in a PhD, seminary kind of way, But they need to tell you that they're a sinner and Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again. And one day he's coming back. And if if you say, hey, you talked to Jesus, what did you pray for, little Johnny? And he says, oh, I don't know, Dad, tell me, what did I pray? The best thing to say is, son, if you can't remember what you prayed, you're probably not a Christian yet. And it's good to continue explaining the gospel to him. But if you quickly say, oh, no, here's what you prayed you're hurting him in the long run. But certainly we should have more than just the knowledge of the gospel, right? The demons can explain the gospel, and they're certainly not converted. So we'd like to see more than that from our kids. But what does it look like to have a true working of the Spirit? I tell you, one of the things that in the cookhouse we look for, and there's probably other ways to talk about this, in the cookhouse what we look for is our kids confessing sin to us, where we never would have found out about their sin otherwise. Right? It's one thing to get caught red-handed and you feel bad about it, or you, you, maybe you feel bad about the sin, or maybe you're just trying to minimize the consequences. As a dad, it's hard to know the difference sometimes there, right? But if a kid is coming saying, Dad, I want you to know about this thing. I'm really sorry. I didn't do what I was supposed to do, and I never would have known about it. Well, that starts to be better evidence of the Spirit at work. Students, can I, can I just speak to you for a second? Whatever 
age you are, whatever grade level you're in, it is so easy to do what your parents do. It's so easy to go where your parents go and do the things you know are going to make them happy. But you personally have to follow Jesus. You have to make that decision. I'm going to have a personal encounter with the grace of God and give your life to following him. It's much for us to consider here. Let me give you just one recommendation as we're kind of continuing on, whether you're a parent or a student, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a school teacher, a youth worker, anywhere, Michael Lawrence has a really good yellow book called Conversion. It's highlighted in the bookstore over there. It's maybe 120 pages. Uh, and just a really practical guide to help us think through what does this look like to see genuine fruit and give real assurance where it's supposed to be there and really proclaim the gospel to kids. Like, I'm not saying shrink back from that. Let's just be cautious in giving that assurance too soon. Maybe you hear me saying these things about a personal encounter with the grace of God that Jacob had. He was all alone, encountered God's grace. And you say, Justin, does this, does this undercut any of these talks about Christian community and growing through relationships and meaningful membership in Christ's church where we commit to love each other? No, it doesn't undercut that in any way. Because community with other believers, it's critical. But it's no replacement for personally encountering the grace of God. In community, you grow as a Christian. You should plan to arrive a little early and stay a little late. You should join a community group or a Sunday school class. But you got to recognize this is God's plan for how you grow. So it's not an optional thing to be in community, but it's not the ultimate thing. Are you understanding the difference there? I wonder if, if some of you hear this story of Jacob in his personal encounter with the grace of God, and you think of the time you got saved. And this first point has a lot to do with you yourself encountering the grace of God at conversion. But do recognize this wasn't Jacob's conversion here in chapter 32. He met God in chapter 28 in the wilderness. That appears to be where he was converted. And here we find him with an ongoing encounter with the grace of God. Does that describe you as a Christian? In an ongoing way, I encounter the grace of God that amazes me. I don't just know things about him. I actually, what's it say on the wall? I actually delight in the gospel. I'm struck by what he's done for me. And you may be passionate about all sorts of things, about seeing your family follow Jesus, or seeing more Christianity in the public sphere, or various ministries you love. All of those things are good, but none of them are a replacement for you yourself, like Jacob, having a life that regularly encounters the grace of God in a personal way. You say, Justin, I, I hear what you're saying. I see that in Jacob's life. If I'm being honest, it feels a little stale for me right now. I try and read the Bible. I try and pray. It feels like just another book, and it feels like my prayers kind of hit the ceiling and bounce back at me. Where do I get started? I'm glad you asked. That's something we'll unpack through the rest of the sermon. But if you want a starting point, starting point is simply to say this, a prayer of dependence to God. Say, God, I need you. I know I need your grace. I know I need to encounter it in a personal way. And I'm not right now. Would you please help your grace to be more real in my life than it is today? Just a prayer of dependence, asking God's grace to break through. It's the first lesson about grace from Genesis 32. Grace must be personal. But the second lesson flows out of it, and it's this. Grace isn't what you expect. 
Grace isn't what you expect. Look back at verse 25 with me, please. Here's what we read. When the man, that's actually God, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. If I say grace isn't what you expect, what's unexpected here in verse 25? Well, a couple of things. One, it's, it's unexpected that Jacob would wrestle with God and Jacob would win. Okay, that, that's strange, and, and we'll get back to that at, at a later point. So just kind of table that one for a second. But the second unexpected thing is that God would injure Jacob. Think about that for a second. God severely injures one of his saints. That's not how we usually think of God, is it? It's unexpected. You've got to understand, your hip going out of joint is incredibly painful. This is not like a little sprained ankle or a boo-boo you got playing on the sidewalk. Right? Bo Jackson was one of the greatest athletes of the last century, and his career was effectively ended by a hip dislocation. Right? So this is a big deal. And what this understanding of grace not being what we expected does is it cuts against all kinds of different views of God. It cuts against the progressive view of God, who says, God affirms me as I am. He loves me like I am, and I don't have to change. No, 1 Peter 1.16, God says that he is calling you to be holy as he is holy. You must both place your faith in Jesus and repent of your sins. Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped away and that times of refreshing may come to, from the Lord. Suggested repentance, that's kind of a churchy word. What does that mean? It means a change. I'm going to change my mind about my sin. I'm going to change my behavior. Or you might say a turn. I was going this way. I was following myself. To repent means to turn, and I'm now following Jesus. It's a change. It's a turning. And friends, repentance has largely been lost in the American church today. And it needs to be recovered we're either going to conform our lives to the Bible or we're going to ask the Bible to conform to our lives. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. And it's easy to look out in the realm of, of sexual ethics and gender identity and see all kinds of ways where repentance has been discarded. But repentance has also largely been discarded in conservative churches. And I wonder this morning if you need to repent of an individualistic mindset for your faith. You say, my Christianity is a me and Jesus thing, and I don't have to have a meaningful commitment to other believers. I'm not just asking if you're a member of a church. I'm asking if there's two or three other brothers or sisters who know the sin struggle that you're going to have this week and are actively laboring with you in prayer, that you would become more like Jesus. Maybe you need to repent of your individualistic mindset. Or maybe you need to repent of having a private faith. Because you say, Justin, I'm, I'm here on Sunday, I serve, I have some friends at church, they know what's going on, but I've largely given up on trying to tell unbelievers who Jesus is. My faith is private. I used to invite people to church. I used to think of Easter as a great time to invite people. And that's just kind of missing in my life. I've drifted. I never made a decision to stop being engaged in proclaiming the gospel. It just sort of over time was a drift. And you need to repent this morning of a private view of your faith. 
God says, I love you where you are, and I love you too much to leave you there. So grace was, isn't what is expected from a progressive view of God. But it's also cutting against a legalistic, rigid view of God. Grace isn't what that view of God expects either. Right? The knife cuts both ways. The legalistic view that basically says, if I go to church, I read my Bible, I do the right thing, serve in kids' ministry when I can, try to give when we're able, then God will basically bless me. Sure, things won't go perfectly, I get that, but I'm not going to have things totally go off the rails. Life isn't going to get flipped totally upside down on me because I'm a good person. And grace cuts against that view as well, because what do we find in Jacob's life? Here in chapter 32, we find him obeying, imperfectly, but still obeying. And God says to Jacob, Jacob, I have your obedience, but I want more than your obedience. I want your heart. Catch this. Jacob is heading back to the promised land where he's supposed to be. He's trying to reconcile with his brother. That's a good thing. Verses 9 through 12, he prays a four-verse long prayer. So there, there are some signs on the outside that Jacob is obeying. But even in all of it, God says, I have your obedience, but Jacob, I don't have your heart. And so God, out of his love for Jacob, hurts him. He injures his hip to draw him closer to himself. Friends, this is shocking for us to think about, that God would injure his saint out of love for him to draw him closer to himself. We have to grapple with this and recognize that God's plan for your life isn't to make you healthy and wealthy and give you all the kids you want and no more than you want. No, his plan for your life is to show you that he is better than life itself. And if he needs to bring trials and suffering along the way so that we will see that he is better than anything else, then out of his great love for us, he will do that. His plan is that we would find our deepest identity in his grace and nowhere else. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 would say that Paul, his thorn in the flesh was a gift from God to keep him from pride and that he would rest in God's grace. You may want to go back and read 2 Corinthians 12 and review that. There's a famous poem that I frequently have gone back to, a Christian poem. The author is unknown but it makes this point eloquently and beautifully. It's on the screen. Listen to what this says. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Friends, God knows what he's about. If we want to get just intensely practical here, I think it's so easy for us to see the difficulties and the trials of life like a section of the highway without cell coverage. 
And our goal was just to get through it to the other side. And God's saying, no, 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 this stretch of highway has a very specific purpose for you. I intend to mold you and to shape you into the image of my son, Jesus. And so rather than simply saying, God, when can this end? When, I can, when can I get past this? Say, God, what do you want to teach me in this? Because I know it's your good hand in all things. You give and you take away. We see this in the life of Jacob. Friends, grace isn't what we would expect. No, it's not. It meets us where we are, but it won't leave us there. It requires repentance. And it doesn't merely lead us to obedience, but to a changed heart. At times, this means God sends trials to wake us up. This cuts against the progressive and the legalistic view. It doesn't fit neatly into your box. I'm reminded of the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, and there's the one scene I love so much when little Lucy is asking about the Christ figure, Aslan. She asked Mr. Beaver about him, about Aslan, and she asked if he's safe. And Mr. Beaver says back to her, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Grace isn't what we expect, just like Aslan wasn't what Lucy expected. Because it's not what we expect, that brings us to the third point, a third lesson about grace. Grace cuts to your core. Grace cuts to your core. Look back at verse 26 with me. Here's what we read. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What does it mean that grace cuts to your core? It means it doesn't live on the edges of your life. It becomes the center. All throughout Jacob's life, we've seen this theme of the blessing. Abraham's life was all about receiving the promise. Jacob is seeking the blessing. And he spent his entire life, it seems, looking for the blessing in all the wrong places. And here in chapter 32, as he wrestles with God and is injured, he finds the blessing in God's presence. Just think through this with me of his life. Chapter 25, even in the womb, What's Jacob doing? Wrestling for the blessing to get out of the womb first before Esau. Chapter 27, he's wrestling with Esau to say, who can get the blessing and the birthright? He continues and wrestles with his dad to try and get the birthright and deceives him. Chapter 29, he's wrestling with Laban to try and get the most beautiful wife. That's where the blessing will be. Chapters 30 and 31, he's wrestling with Laban saying, boy, if I can get your wealth, that's where the blessing will be. Chapter 32, we come to, he's getting ready to wrestle with Esau and say, if my relationships can be restored, that's where the blessing will be. There's absolutely nothing wrong with these kinds of blessings. I'm not saying Jacob was wrong to seek them, and I'm not saying you should not seek them either, but they can't provide the ultimate satisfaction you're looking for. They can't be at the core of your life. And this is the significance here of Jacob being renamed. You have a new identity. There's a new core to your being. This is part of the reason that God wounds Jacob, so that he can see these other things. Maybe they were at the core for a while, but they need not be any longer, because I am the source of your true blessing. Friends, the human soul is too weighty to be held up by anything besides the grace of God. So look nowhere else. I think a lot of churchgoers live with God sort of on the periphery. 
He's involved in your life, there's no doubt about it, but he's not at the center. And that's why when you try to pray, you you do all right for five or ten minutes. But past ten minutes, you can't think of anything to say to God because he's not at the center of your life. He's on the edges. It's why it's hard to talk about your faith maybe with other Christians, much less with non-Christians, because it's not at the center of your life. And the things that are at the center, it's easy to talk about. It's easy to talk about the Silicon Valley Bank and its collapse over the weekend. That scares us because money's at the center. It's easy to talk about the job stressors and the relationships that are off there. It's easy to talk about your favorite sports team. These are the things at the center. You start to realize, man, God is involved in my life, but his grace actually cut to my core. It burns through the fluff. God says to Jacob, Jacob, don't you see I was on the periphery of your life and I want to be at the center. We sing about this in the song, Give Me Jesus. It says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And the thing about the songs is they take these sort of truths we know to be true and they present them in a beautiful and a compelling way that you want to kind of keep singing. But for grace to cut to your core is exhausting. It's hard. It's not easy like singing a song. That's why it's a wrestling match in chapter 32. Has anybody ever wrestled like a serious wrestling match? You see a show of hands on this? A few of you? couple. Now, I I didn't wrestle competitively, but I was in junior high, and our PE teacher had us do a wrestling unit. And what I quickly discovered as a scrawny middle school kid is I couldn't think about anything while I was wrestling but wrestling. Like, I try and think about what's coming up for dinner or what's coming up in our baseball game that night or anything, and I quickly got choked out by a guy twice my size. So it's like, this is intense business. Like, you can't, can't do multiple things at a time here. Like, you've got to be all in on, how do I get this guy to the mat and make sure I don't get slammed in the process? And I wonder if you can recognize that in a wrestling sense, but in your pursuit of God, you've not nearly had that degree of intensity or seriousness or intentionality recently. But if you're here and you're not a Christian... I would encourage you to be focused like you are in a wrestling match on finding out, is there a God? If there is one, which one is the true God? Is it the God of Islam or Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity? Who is it? If you've got questions about that, I'd love to get together this week and help you wrestle through those things. You've got to get serious there. And if you are a Christian... Friend, there's no room for passivity here. You've got to be intentional and focused in seeking Jesus. Having grace cut to your core might mean you say, I'm going to set aside food for a day a month. I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek God to recognize that being in the presence of God is more important than food. It might mean you say, grace is cut to the core, and so it's about to be nice weather out, and I'd love to have Sunday night free to do yard work, but I'm going to set that aside and serve in children's ministry because I want the next generation to know who Jesus is. Having grace cut to the core might mean you look ahead at the spring offering or giving in general and say, I'm going to seek to trim my budget so I can be more generous with everything God's entrusted to me so I can show myself and God that he's more valuable than anything else in my life. Grace always cuts to the core. And so it must be personal. You have to encounter it yourself. That's the first point. And the second point, it's not what you expect. Third point, it does cut to the core. 
But the fundamental question, I think, that brings it all together is, say, Justin, I, I want to have a personal encounter with God's grace, and if my thinking's wrong, I'd like it to be corrected. And if God's at the edge of my life, I want him to be at the center. How does that come to me? Isn't that the question? How does that get there? I said we'd come back to it. Fourth and final lesson about grace. Grace comes through weakness. Grace comes through weakness. Look back at verse 25, please. Here's what we read. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I told you we'd come back to the surprising part of how does God wrestle with Jacob and it seems that God loses. How does Jacob prevail over God? How does God say to Jacob, let me go? Isn't this the all-powerful God of the universe? This is a perplexing question. And if you're confused by it, don't feel bad because Jacob himself was confused. Look at at verse 30. You see this, this question of confusion in his life. He says, verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In essence, he's saying, I should have died. I saw God's face. The original audience is certainly remembering Moses. I'm on the mountain in Exodus 33, where Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, no, you can't see my glory. You'll die. Here, I want you to hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you can see the shadow come by later. Certainly that's on their mind. So how exactly does this happen? Well, let me give you an, an example that maybe helps to illustrate it. My daughters and I like to play a game called Tickle Monster. Play Tickle Monster, here's how it works. I sit on the couch, and they get pillows, and they try and throw pillows at me and come and grab me and tackle me, and I try and tickle them when they come, and when I tickle them, they have to run away, and it's this thing of, can they get the Tickle Monster? Will the Tickle Monster get them? And after we play for a little while, I eventually decide to let them tackle me. I voluntarily sort of restrain my power and make them weak. They get kind of rolling on top of me, and I might roll my shoulder onto them, but I'm not going to put my whole weight on them. That would crush them. Right? It's not that they're stronger than me, but I'm restraining myself in a sort of ways there. And I think that's similar to what's happening in Genesis 32. God may not have played tickle monster, but he voluntarily makes himself weak. He restrains his power. I think there's some parallels from Jesus' life that help us to understand this. It's not that Jesus ceased to be God. No, he's 100% God, 100% man. But he displays weakness and restrained power. Hebrews 4 and 5 tell us that he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He became like us so he could relate to us. Philippians 2 says he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. We don't miss the good news here. Have you ever had a, a math assignment and you can't figure it out? And there's the whiz in the class that everything makes sense and they don't have to struggle through it. And he offers the help or she offers the help. And you say, you can't help me here. It all makes sense to you. You didn't have to struggle through this. I need a mere mortal like myself to help me understand. Jesus says, I became like you. I became weak. So I would understand the difficulty you're facing this Sunday afternoon. The challenges you're facing the temptations you're facing. I became like you to understand you so that I can help you. In this wrestling match, Jacob receives a blow from God and it wakes him up. But it didn't destroy him. He lived. 
In a sense, if you're using the tickle monster language, he didn't get the full weight of God. And this is exactly how God's grace can come to Jacob without killing him. It can only come if it's not the full weight. The blow caused him to say, all my life I've been missing it, but here's where the blessing is truly found. He held on to God, held on and said, bless me, I need your blessing. And we look ahead and it foreshadows in a far greater way that on the cross, Jesus would take the full blow of God's justice. He would take the full weight of God's wrath. And whereas it woke up Jacob, it didn't just wake Jesus up, it actually killed him. But after getting the full weight of God's wrath, he too held on like Jacob did. Catch this. He didn't say, give me the blessing. He said, no, let me give the blessing to all those who by faith would trust in me. He went there for you. And so we, like Jacob, can wrestle for the blessing apart from God's grace. And because Christ would come and take the full blow of God's wrath, through his weakness, the blessing can come to us. Jacob, then, is the ultimate Jacob, who took the devastating blow of God's justice so that we would only receive blows of grace that wake us up. Friends, you can only encounter Jesus and his grace because he became weak. He's the one who deserved the blessing, but instead got a curse. And because he absorbed the curse on the cross, we all can deserve the curse, but receive the blessing. It's beautiful. True blessing, true grace can only come from the God who becomes weak. Can only come there. So if you're not a Christian, I understand you've got questions about God. You're not sure, is the Bible true? Can I trust in this kind of a God? I want to encourage you to ask those questions, but recognize there's no God like the Christian God who becomes weak to save his people. The Christian God is utterly unique in that way. So as you're exploring religion, you should start with Christianity because it is unlike any other religion. There's something glorious about a God who would condescend and become like you to demonstrate his amazing love for you. If you are a Christian, maybe things have become just a little boring for you in your Christian life. A little moldy, a little bit of staleness going on. Friend, I invite you to look to the cross and see in a fresh way a God who would become weak to bring a blessing to you. He would take the full weight of God's wrath so you wouldn't have to face it and rejoice and delight in the wonder of that miracle. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you would become weak for us, that you would take the curse so that we could receive a blessing. We thank you that you would take on the full weight of God's wrath so that we wouldn't get the full weight, but would merely get blows of grace to wake us up and show us that we need you. Lord, I ask this morning for those here who don't know you as their Savior, I pray that they would cry out to you, asking you to forgive them of their sins, that they would become sons and daughters of God this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are Christians, who've already placed their trust in you. I ask that this miracle of grace, the Son, become flesh for us, would be astonishing in the grace that's seen. It would wake us up. It would warm our hearts and cause us to delight in the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.